Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. Before we actually go through, let's do a little bit of, uh, of recap and maybe some observations from Exodus and the Egyptian plagues. You notice here, as we've gone, gone through the vials, now what's interesting is people talk about, well, the word vial should be bowl, and that's like saying the word dog should be cat. I mean, it's like just two completely different things. Um, imagine trying to, <laughs> trying to eat, uh, use a vial for chip dip. You know what I mean? Like, I guess it could be done, but you have to crush the, the chips and squirt them down into the vial somehow and extract them. A bowl is a lot different. And so, just, just as a side note. Now, look at these things. You've got the target and the outcome there. The first uh, target is the earth, and uh, it, it results in the grievous sore. You have horrible sores as the sixth plague. And uh, something else to keep in mind, if you're, we've, we're studying pretty in-depth, and so that's the way I approach it. Um, I'm not going to say it's the most in-depth. I will say the hardest thing in the world is to compile the information that I read and so forth and study and try to put it together in a way that makes sense. Tonight may be an abject failure, so hang on to your hat. But, but uh, it, the scripture defines or describes these plagues as the seven last plagues in Revelation 16, the seven last plagues. And so many commentators will say that must mean it is the end of the tribulation. And certainly it appears that that is the case. But something else to keep in mind, if you think of the ten first plagues, so to speak, in the book of Exodus, then the seven last plagues would make sense as well, because there's so many parallels between the plagues in Exodus and the vials in Revelation 16. You see the second target is the sea, and that becomes blood. Then the third is the rivers and fountains, which also become blood. So that ties in with the first plague, where the waters become blood in Egypt. The fourth is the sun, uh, the great scorching heat. I don't see a parallel in, in the, the plagues of Egypt. If you see one, let me know. Then you have the seat of the beast that is uh, uh, targeted with darkness and some type of darkness that brings pain. Uh, it seems to be a certain kind of darkness, okay? And uh, ninth plague in Egypt. The sixth is the Euphrates, which we'll study tonight, and the waters dry up and uh, frogs are connected there. And, of course, you have frogs in the, as the second plague. The seventh is where the air is targeted, and you will see that next time with the great earthquake and hail, so forth. Okay, if you want to tie those things in, it can. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.15 tells us, That which hath been is already. Uh, that which is now is yet to be. Rough, rough uh, paraphrase of that verse. But the idea is that it's a principle in Scripture that there's a cyclical pattern in the Bible. And it, what that means is... Is, well, you might say, oh, he's not in the future. He's not talking about that. He's talking about that. Well, he's actually talking about both. He's talking about what already happened is a precursor to what will happen again. And so God works, we think, uh, in a linear way about history. But the biblical Jew thinks about history in a cyclical way. That what goes around comes around. And that will help you to realize that when, you, when you're reading your Old Testament... It, it will be shadows of what is going to come in the future, but also multiple cycles, shadows of what already has taken place. 
uh, maybe more than once, maybe more than twice, and then it will come back again. And so it helps us as we think through the scripture. But I want you to see here in, uh, before we jump into 16, it's after the fifth vial is poured. Okay, this is after vial number five, and it's poured where? On the kingdom. Notice, it's poured on the kingdom of the, the, uh, of the beast. Look at verse number 10. Fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. That tells you something, too, by the way. Uh, if you're worried about, you know, when we talk about this, that the Antichrist is going to take over the entire world, and certainly he is going to pull everyone together. But remember, the Antichrist does battle, uh, or the beast battles other nations. And here, his kingdom, it's defined as his kingdom, uh, that's full of darkness. And so he has a defined kingdom. Boundaries. All right. So the, he, his kingdom is judged. And it, 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 the Antichrist, then uh, this beast and the false prophet, they go forth together to gather these kings to battle. And really, we find that this is a counterattack. A counterattack. We'll see that in, again, uh, in a minute here, but notice sometimes we think of it as just this happens, that happens, that happens, but, but God responds and the beast responds as well. They go back and forth and God is working and the devil is working. So now we come to the sixth vial, the sixth vial, and uh, let's read verses 12. And uh, we'll read a few verses here, starting in verse number 12. It says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up at the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets, uh, prophet, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So here we go. First of all, the directives for the battle are revealed. Now you may be wondering, where are the blanks? Well, today the blanks are mainly in my head. That's where they are. And so for you, they are all filled in. Uh, I didn't have the time to print those off, but he is referring here, of course, to the battle. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. However, in Scripture, uh, can you guess how many times Armageddon is used? You know by now in our study of Revelation, it's not what you think. It's only used one time. And never is it called specifically the Battle of Armageddon. But we understand it, it is the battle at Armageddon. It's the place where he gathers everyone together. And so we see in verse number 12, I want to talk about the great river Euphrates. There is a significance with this river. And it's, uh, you know, we read it through scripture. And sometimes a topical study is very helpful because it gathers in all of the different references throughout scripture and puts them in one place. And so here we see this, this Euphrates River. I think, Mrs. Feldman, you have a picture of the Euphrates. Do you have that for us? It starts way up there in Turkey. And it empties all the way down in the Persian Gulf. 
And uh, this river, we, it, it, we, it's called the Great River in Scripture. Uh, just like the, the Scripture calls the Mediterranean uh, the Great Sea, uh, which is over there on the left-hand side. But uh, it also calls Euphrates the Great River five different times. And, and it's not what we think of as the mighty Mississippi. I mean, it's really puny compared to the Mississippi River. But as far as that place is concerned, it's massive. And it's very helpful, of course, in any kind of desert uh, to have any kind of water whatsoever. And it is a large, it's a large river. And uh, it starts up there in Turkey, goes through Syria, Iraq, and goes in the Persian Gulf. And they've uh, tapped it for the Haditha Dam, which brings power to Baghdad. It's mentioned 21 times in Scripture. As I said, it's called the Great River five times. Here's some reasons why it's great. Number one, it's associated with the historical city of Babylon. And it, you can see that uh, it goes right down through Iraq, which is where Babylon was, the great city. And if you remember, the, uh, the Persians diverted it in order to dry it up and, and go under the wall. This is historically uh, what, the, what they tell us, historians, that they diverted that, and they went under the wall, and they were able to march into Babylon uh, because that, wa- that river was deep enough. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so important. And then it, in, it is the longest and most significant river in the Middle East. It's 1,470 miles long. Uh, between 650 and 1,300 feet wide, and it ranges between 15 to 98 feet deep. All right, another reason is it has served as a great boundary line for the last 6,000 years between the countries of the East and the countries of the West there in the Middle East. And uh, so it is uh, a natural boundary, just like many of our state lines here in the states and county lines and so forth, are based on waterways. And uh, then another reason, it's connected with the beginning of sin, which we'll see a little bit later, and the final judgment of sin. Uh, it, Euphrates is first mentioned in connection with the Garden of Eden. And then Genesis fifteen eighteen is uh, is a verse that tells us about. I think this is the second mention of it of, of Euphrates. It tells us that this is the easternmost boundary of Abraham's land grant. So you can see where where Israel is today, and they have the Gaza Strip carved out and the West Bank carved out and all that. But the Lord said, "I'm giving you all the way over there and all the way over here in Egypt." And, uh, and, and so notice that there is a whole lot more, encompasses all the land of Syria, and uh, which of course is where Abraham was from. <clears throat> he was a Syrian. All the way over there, there's a lot of land that still does not belong to Israel. David, during his kingdom, actually conquered all the way out east to, uh, to the Euphrates River. But uh, it's been very rare in Israel's history that they have had all of that land. And of course, they've been battling, battling back and forth, up and down. And as we'll see tonight, it has been a hotly contested place. There's no doubt about it. All right, now, take your Bible and go to, um, go to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 10. If, you're in, if you go to Matthew and go left, Zechariah, you'll run into it pretty quick. Zechariah chapter 10. 
And while you're turning there, I want to read Isaiah eleven fifteen. Isaiah eleven fifteen. The Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. And look at Zechariah ten eleven. He shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. Now, if you've been on YouTube in, recently, and you're a Christian, you may have been targeted with the idea that the Euphrates River is drying up. And I have not even looked at it, because honestly, that's not what he's talking about here. This is during the tribulation period. It's a completely different time frame. Even if Euphrates was to dry up completely, somehow or other, the Lord would fill it back up. Uh, because it's not referring to this time. It's interesting, and you get into Revelation, we're always trying to make the Bible fit the headlines. I would suggest you turn it around and make the headlines fit the Bible. And if they don't fit, they're out. It's just all there is to it. Uh, I, I read... I was reading a little in a book today. You can find it on Google Books. And the name of it, uh, the, the destined, uh, something about the, the, Louis Napoleon, Napoleon, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, who was supposedly, according to this book, was going to be the Antichrist. And the battle that we're studying tonight in Revelation 16 was going to take place, according to his prophecy, uh, somewhere around 1871, 1872. This book was written way, way, way back. And they were prophesying that this was going to happen. And he had lots of reasons. Um, how many have ever heard of Napoleon having a nephew named Louis Napoleon? I'd never heard about it, and I was amazed. But, I mean, this is a big, thick book with lots of annotations, lots of references to what's going on. It just shows the foolishness of trying to make the Bible fit the headlines. You've got to turn it around and make the headlines fit the Bible. So as we go through this, um, remember, clickbait, there's a reason for clickbait. (laughs) It's money. Clicks equals dollars. And so uh, we have to be careful. It's not that it's not cool, but the the problem is, and we mentioned this multiple times, you get really jacked like, oh, maybe maybe the Bible is true after all. The Bible is true. Whether you feel like it is or not, whether YouTube tells you it is or Facebook tells you it is, it doesn't matter. The Bible keeps chugging along. You realize Facebook only came out in 2006? It's amazing. And YouTube was within a year on either side of that. I can't remember where. Uh, But it's amazing how those things have become major engines of social change. People lock into this stuff and they go, oh, I heard about this, that, and the third. And at the end of the day, uh, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the Bible says that the, the man is like the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand. You don't have to worry about it. It will be there. It continues to, to move on through history. Now, look at, uh, at what he says. He's going to dry it up. Now, what dries it up? He doesn't specifically say. Uh, he just says the vial is poured out and the vial dries it up. How, how does God dry it up? I don't know. But uh, we know that God can stop the flow of water. He's done it many times. Uh, someone suggested maybe the blood dries it up. I don't know. We can go crazy trying to figure it out. But either way, 
the blood, uh, the water dries up. Now let's look at the purpose. The purpose of drying up the river is very clear. Notice he says in verse 12 that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So at this point in the tribulation period, the, the beast is in a lot of trouble. God delivered a direct hit on his domain when he poured out the fifth vial. And so you're going to have all these gigantic armies of the east that are going to rally to the cause of the beast. They're going to say, we're going to help you out. In order to get to the, uh, the beast there, they have to go across the Euphrates River. And so what you find is that God dries up the Euphrates River for them. And that's a principle, by the way. Something that you push for and you want and you demand and you will have, God will allow you to have. And in some cases, God will even push you that direction. Someone said God greases the skids in the direction that you want to go in your heart. That's a scary thing to remember, because what if you're going to a direction that will hurt you? If you really want to go that way, God will help you go that way. People say all the time. Well, I don't understand why that happened. If, if God didn't want me to have that, why did he let that happen? Maybe because God knew you really wanted it, even though he told you no a hundred million times. And so he says, okay, I'm going to help you. Remember how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because Pharaoh wanted to rebel against God. So here, God actually dries up the Euphrates River. Remember the, uh, the Red Sea? And how God dried up the Red Sea and it parted. Went over, they went over on dry land. Why? Well, part of it was to lure the army of Pharaoh. To lure the Egyptian army into the Red Sea where they were drowned. That's a similar thing here. This becomes a lure to the destru- for the destruction of these armies, the kings of the east. Now, keep this in mind. The vast majority of the people on this planet live east of the Euphrates River. I mean, you're talking China, Indonesia, India, um, Japan, North and South Korea, parts of Russia. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people living over there. Um, they say, according to the world uh, population uh, estimate in 2022, uh, this was there's 7.977 billion people on the planet. And China, India, and Indonesia comprise 38% of the world's population. Uh, that's 3.1 billion, not even including uh, North, South Korea, Japan, and so forth. And so there are most of the people of the world are, are really living over there. And so there's a lot. Now, you heard uh, of the, 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 the great statement that was made about uh, that China, China has a standing army. From what I can tell, their standing army is not 200 million people, but they have lots of men that are in military age, more than that. Uh, I think there was 300 million, something like that, when I checked. Uh, but, but they can call those guys up if, if it was that. And uh, notice it says the kings of the East. So it doesn't have to be just China. It could be however many. And, you know, we always kind of think about uh, the Caucasian race as somehow being in charge. Well, God sets people up and pushes them down. He lets them rise. He, put, he lets them fall. And it looks like towards the end of the age, towards the end of this time, it's going to be more of the people in Asia that are higher. And we certainly see 
uh, certainly see that today. Uh, it's a powder keg over there in China. And with that new, newly elected president of Taiwan, who knows what could set it off? I mean, they, China is not happy because they say, we want to have Taiwan back. And they're fighting and pushing in every possible way. And, of course, you've got the, uh, the uh, upset there between North and South Korea. And, and there's so many. I mean, India as well is, is just a powder keg. Uh, talk to Brother Wild, he'll tell you. I mean, the, all the different factions in India, uh, it's crazy. I was talking with Brother Varghese, a man that we've supported for years, and uh, he's up in the northern uh, northern province, and he came from the south, supposedly where Thomas the Apostle came and you know brought the gospel to India, tradition tells us. That was in the south, and there's a, uh, more Christians there, but as you go north, it is a dangerous thing to be a Christian. And, of course, there are a billion or so people, uh, more than a billion, in India. And as a result of that, you have lots and lots and lots and lots of people. We, we have 330, 35 million in America. Um, that's nothing compared to the countries over there. I mean, they jam-pack. You ever get around uh, the Indian culture, you sometimes realize they have, it would seem to us as Americans, they don't respect your airspace as much. They're just right up in your grill, you know. And you would be too if you were packed in just like sardines. And so it's, it's a different thing. We, we sometimes think, oh, they're all over there. They're just savage people. You, when's the last time you called uh, your phone company or something, you're trying to get some technical support and you spoke to somebody that spoke with a Midwestern accent. I mean, those folks are over there. You realize what they're doing. It would be like you and I being technical support for someone in China. It's pretty smart. I mean, those folks have it going on and they're, they're doing that with, you know, on pennies a day. And so that's a big, massive move that would definitely make way for the massive army that we see here in Revelation chapter 16. We haven't mentioned it yet, but this is coming from Revelation chapter 9, which we'll look at in a little bit or chapter 14. All right. So. What drives the kings? What drives the kings and their armies to battle? Well, let's look at it. Look at chapter 16, verse 13. Are you still with me tonight? Okay, good. I had to double check. Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So the satanic trinity here is mentioned. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they're sending forth these spirits. Uh, these are three different individuals with separate mouths and separate devils. You have, uh, you have uh, the, the dragon, that's the counterfeit father. Uh, it's, that's the devil himself cast out onto earth, Revelation chapter 12. And uh, the, the Bible tells us that they will be worshipped. All three will be worshipped. And all three are deceivers and antichrists. Uh, the beast is the counterfeit son, and the false prophet is the counterfeit spirit. Notice that the spirits, these unclean spirits, are coming out of the mouth. Hold your place in Revelation and look at Exodus chapter 8. Look at Exodus chapter 8. We won't take the time to go there, but uh, in Leviticus we find out that frogs are unclean animals. It says, all that are, uh, have not fins and scales in the seas and in the rivers of all that move in the waters, and of any living thing which is in the waters... They shall be an abomination. So you got to have, in order to eat it, you got to have fins and scales. And uh, if they don't have fins and scales, you can't eat them. 
Look at Exodus 8. Here's, here's the Lord in verse 1, judging Egypt. The Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly. Notice the river brings them forth. We find in Revelation 16 that the river is dried up and then these three unclean spirits start to go out of the mouth of the dragon. There's some type of connection between them. I don't know exactly what it is. And it says, These frogs which shall go up and come into thine house and into thy bedchamber and upon thy bed. And into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs, and the frogs shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. So you see the three groups there, Pharaoh, and the people, and the servants, and the frogs are going to... uh, basically take over their lives. And uh, this is a disgusting thing. I know some people, for me, frogs are not as disgusting, but that's because I don't really know exactly what they're doing and where they've been. And, uh, and, And I know one thing, if I ever saw a frog come out of someone's mouth, that would be disgusting. And uh, isn't that interesting, though, the infatuation that horror movies have with insects and animals and things coming out of the mouths of people? Why? It's unnatural. Uh, you don't have living things coming out of your mouth. And, uh, and the Lord, Lord told us that it's not that which goeth into a man, but that which cometh out of a man that defileth. And it's an interesting thought. Well, he's talking about the spiritual thing. What comes out of your mouth? Well, your breath. Your inspiration, so to speak. Uh, So here we have these uh, spirits that come out. And you remember what Jesus said that that when the unclean spirit of a man is, is, unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he wandereth where? Anybody remember? Just a side, a side, side note. And desert places. Uh... There's something about the, the dryness and the desert. We find here that the, that Euphrates is dried up, and then we see these frogs coming out. Now, these are not uh, what we would say physical frogs. These are spirit frogs. Um, remember we talked about how in the spirit realm, we think of, well, there's the real world, and then there's the fake world or the invisible world that's not really real. No, it's the spirit realm. Um, people say that they see things when they're on high on LSD or uh, some type of hallucinatory drug. They see things that are not there. And of course we say, well, of course that's stupid because we all, we all, we know that the material world is all that there is. But what if it's not? What if the hallucinatory drugs are actually a portal or gateway to that spirit realm? And if they're not, if it's not real, one of, I mean, this is not about that, but just what, what's the infatuation with the unknown? Why, why is everybody scared of the spirit realm? It's not even real. You know, it'd be like being scared of a, of a, a blue elephant that breathes fire and wears a tutu. Like, that's not a thing. Nobody's worried about that. There's something about the spirit realm that has in it, that resonates with the soul of man. 
And so here we see these unclean spirits. They come out. They come out of the mouth. Where were they? They were inside. Now they're coming out. And what are they going to do? Well, it tells us that they're on a special mission. Um, they're, they're taking, they're coming out of the mouth. So what does that mean? It, it means that they're taking the words of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet with them. They're, they're coming out, and they're going to take the message of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, the satanic trinity. They're taking that message with them as they go out. Um, you know, the Lord said, tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power. What was he talking about? The Holy Spirit. And he says, ye shall be witnesses unto me. After the Holy Spirit has come into you, then you are going to go out and you're going to bring my message to the entire world. What message are we bringing? We're bringing the message of the Spirit of God. Really, this is not an unclean spirit. This is the Spirit of God. When you speak the words of God, the Spirit of God is coming out of your mouth. Now, in, in the spirit realm, you're still filled with the Spirit. He's, he's in you, and yet somehow he is connecting outside of you. Uh, I don't understand all this, but I know this. There is an unclean spirit, and there is a holy spirit, a clean spirit. Take your Bibles and look over, if you would, at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 16. When John sees Jesus, the Son of God, when he sees him, he describes him. One of the things he says, Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth. Jesus had a spirit coming out of his mouth. The Bible says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Look at chapter 19. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse uh, 15. Revelation 19 and verse 15. It says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And then look down in verse number, that was 15... In verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. His name is called the Word of God. And out of his mouth goes the Word of God. Now, what is that? Well, we think, well, it's, 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 you know, it's not a literal sword. Well, it's, it's a sword, the sword of the Spirit, and he uses that as a weapon. Mankind is just now coming into laser weapons, and supposedly the, the uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense Fund, uh, Fund Force, has been uh, using, just introducing a laser to knock down the rockets that are coming in. And they've been using, the, you know, working on this for decades. Uh, but what about sound power? Um, you know, you sometimes will see that in cartoons or movies or whatever. Somebody speaks and you see the, the wave, sound waves go out. I think there's some kind of uh, power to the word of God that, that visibly 
uh, can knock people down and can kill them and, and maybe cut them in half. I don't know. But it's some connection with those things, that, that sword coming out of his mouth. The scripture tells us, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. Their spirit. There's more power in the word of God being spoken than we realize. When you are witnessing to people, use the Bible. The Bible is the power of God. The Bible tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And you cannot divorce the gospel from the words of God. See, here's what the devil tells us. I won't speak the Bible to her because she doesn't know anything about the Bible yet. Or, I can't tell him a verse because he doesn't believe the Bible. Well, let me ask you this. If you give medication to someone, does it matter whether or not they believe that it works? Now, some people will say, yes, there's a connection there between positive thinking and all that. And I understand that side of it. What I'm saying is, if you take that into your body, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It is going to start working. Right? Now, a placebo doesn't work at all. It just works because you want it to work. But an actual uh, type of medication does the work, regardless of your belief. When you are witnessing to someone, use the Bible. Now, don't just use the Bible and don't just quote the Bible like your Wikipedia article. You're not a robot. You're a person. But don't shy away from using the Bible because the Bible has power. The words of the Bible, whether or not they believe it or not. The Bible can be used, and in fact, it's the only thing that really can be used when you get down to it. Now, let's go back to Revelation 16. We're making progress, but we've got a long ways to go. Revelation chapter 16, notice it says, For they are the spirits of devils, devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. These devils are using miracles. Notice the spirits of devils. So the devils have spirits, and it says they're going forth to recruit the kings of the nations for battle. And if they have any hesitancy uh, in the minds of the national leaders, they're going to be uh, convinced through miraculous signs that they should join up and that the coalition is better together than staying separate or staying behind. And they're going to call their armies together and they're going to march towards this gathering place. And they gather the kings of the earth and the whole world. And we find that in First, in first Kings, there's a reference, 22, uh, where, where God says, The Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord. Remember this passage? And said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Right? And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets. And again, the Bible says, can, Is there evil in the city? And the Lord hath not done it. The Lord can harness the devil to do his work. And he does that. Why? Because God has an agenda, and he is so good at it, he can actually get the devil working with him on his agenda. Don't be afraid of Satan. Uh, God is not afraid. God uses Satan when he wants to. He did in the book of Job. 
And, uh, you know, the scary thing is when God and the devil are on the same page. (laughs) You want to talk about confusion? No wonder you can't figure it out. If your life is confusing, it could be that God and the devil are on the same page. Uh, There are times when this happens. For instance... When, uh, when that man who was in Corinth, who was committing fornication with his father's wife, you know what Apostle Paul said? Turn him over to Satan for what? The destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? God and the devil are working together. You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to destroy you. And God will sometimes allow a believer to be destroyed in the flesh. He will let Satan loose. It's like a a rabid dog on a chain. And he can't get you as long as that chain is holding him back. Sometimes the Lord will put you in the circumference of that dog's reach and let the devil tear you up. If you're doing something and you have habits and you have mindset that is rebellious towards God, and it does not matter what anybody says, you keep pushing, 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 pushing. Don't be surprised if God puts you right up next to the doghouse and lets the rabid dog eat you up. And you're going to be so confused. How could God allow this? The Lord said, I tried everything else. Let the devil chew on you for a while. And you're going to, you're going to find yourself wondering, am I even saved What's, am I, be, am I under satanic attack? You know, you want to talk about uh, being confused. Uh, it's when the devil gets on. And here, what's interesting about tribulation time period is the devil and Satan are on the same page. They are on the rampage. It's a scary time. So let's go back and look at it. I want to say one thing before, very quickly, does, ask the question, does God perform miracles today? I, I want you to look, if you would, look back at 16, and look what he says, verse 14. They are the spirit of devils working miracles. Okay, now here's something to sink into for a moment. The devil can perform miracles. Okay, so, you know, everybody says, well, I just, it just happened, and don't tell me God didn't do that. Let me remind you, the frogs, the river brought forth frogs, and guess who also brought forth frogs? The magicians brought forth frogs. And you know what that did? It worked perfectly to Satan's advantage because it convinced Pharaoh that God wasn't real. Why, in America, with so many denominations claiming God is doing miracles today, do we have such a wicked country? Why do we have such a neglect of the Bible, and yet we have people talking about how they're just having all kinds of amazing things happening in their lives? We've got to be careful with that. First of all, consider the source of power. Consider the source of power. Demons have power. So ask yourself, is this divine power or diabolical power? People say, the devil doesn't have power to heal. At this point in the tribulation, the devils, the spirit of the devils that go out, they can do whatever they want. They're doing all kinds of stuff. They're healing people, raising the dead. Doesn't, doesn't the, uh, the, the false prophet cause everyone to think that he raised that beast back up from the dead? These, these demonic miracles are everywhere. 
in the tribulation. Something else, consider the history of miracles. Um, This is something you may not have thought about, but not every age is a miracle age. How do I know that? Well, divine miracles are common when God is giving his word. They're common. So, for instance, the first five books of the Bible, Moses, the author of what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, miracles were common at that time. All right. Then you had the time of the prophets where you see miracles and miracles and miracles. But don't forget, after the prophets, what comes next before the coming of Christ? The 400, what? What do you call them? Silent years. Where are the, where are the miracles? There were no miracles that we have recorded. I'm not talking about people say that this happened and that happened. I'm talking about what the Bible says. See, what we do is we think, well, that happened, so you know, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, so where are the miracles in the 400 silent years? They're not there. Uh, what happens then is Jesus comes and the miracles resume. Why? The Word of God is being revealed. And then he gives us all the books of the Bible. And throughout the time of the apostles, we had miracles. Signs are given to say, yes, this is my word. Yes, this is happening. Now, listen, I'm not saying God doesn't have miraculous power. Please understand me. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. But the challenge, the difficulty is when you start claiming, you start claiming that God is going to do this miracle or God wants me to do this miracle or I am the exalted poobah and I can do miracles. I'm all for God healing anyone. I wish God would raise the dead. I wish he would walk on the water. All those things he has done and he will do. And occasionally he does heal people in miraculous fashion. I've heard some wild, crazy things that God has done. And I want that to happen. I believe he can. And I think it's okay to pray God do a miracle. But the, the danger is when we, we try to take this time frame and make it just like every other time frame. You find it interesting that in all the admonition to the church, there is nothing in the church age epistles about casting out devils. Do you find that interesting? He didn't tell the church to do that. Now, do people cast out? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. People say, can you cast out a devil? Does a pastor have? I, I don't know. I've never done it. I've never seen it done. I've only heard about people saying that they could do it. And I don't see any biblical admonitions to do it. I see the apostles that were sent out, the 70 were sent out to cast out devils. And you know, this stuff would get me crucified by people. To say that, I can't believe you don't believe that God can. Well, you know, he said, he left, uh, Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Paul the apostle did. He left him there sick. Why didn't he heal him? It's because when the word of God was coming into being, there were, there were miraculous power. And then as the Bible is completed, that miraculous power starts to go down. Why? Because God lost his power. No, because all the power is here. You know what we want? Well, I know the Bible and everything is great, but I want to see something real. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The, the, the God has determined he's going to do miracles through this book. And what's the biggest miracle he's doing? Salvation of souls. 
the conforming to the image of Christ. That's the miracles that God's doing. All the rest of that stuff, God can do whatever he wants. It's just difficult to find where God tells us that this is what we're supposed to do. All right, now we must be dying. I see folks dying like flies here tonight. We've got to say something funny. I can't think of anything. We're studying the tribulation for crying out loud. What do you want from me? Um, Okay, so the 21st century is not a miracle age so far, but the tribulation period will be a miracle age. You got Moses and Elijah calling down fire from heaven. They're going to be doing amazing miracles. And then you have here uh, Satan exercising supernatural miraculous power as well. Now, one thing I want you to look at here quickly in chapter 16, look at verse 15. Notice, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. There is an indication here. This is a parenthesis because you see in in verse 15, he's talking about gathering them together. And then in verse uh, 14, he's talking about gathering together. Verse 16, he gathers together to this place Armageddon, right? So this, this 15, what's this thing doing here? Look at Matthew 24 and, and see if this doesn't make sense. Matthew 24. Uh, look, at, look at this. This is, a, this is when the Lord appears. Look at verse 36. 24, 36. <clears throat> and it says, that, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Do you see that? There's some kind of a snatching up of his elect when he appears. Now we think of this, well, that's the, that's the rapture. No, no, because we're not in the tribulation. Notice, after the tribulation... Christ returns, and he's going to return to judge the nations at Armageddon. And when he returns, as he's returning, he sends his angels out, and they gather the elect and keep them from the judgment. See that? And so that would make sense why in verse 15 he says, Behold, I come as a thief, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. So it's important in the tribulation period to keep your nose clean. You don't take the mark, you don't bow to the, to the image. There's a lot of things you've got to be careful of. And that's why those passages in Matthew where he says, I'm coming, be ready. I'm coming, be ready. We devotionally apply it to the church age. But the danger of that is when the people in those parables, like they don't have the, you know, the virgins don't have the oil, they're cast out, you know, and, and they're bound and, ca- and cast to, to a place with the tormentors. That's not going to happen in the rapture. Jesus Christ makes every person in the body of Christ a member of his body. So no one's cast out. So you can't line them up exactly. But when you see this, it's understandable. Okay, I better be ready. When Jesus comes, I better be ready. Uh, That is not Jesus comes in the rapture. This is the Jews and those who haven't taken the mark. There's going to be some people that are not even Jews that don't take the mark in the tribulation. 
and they're supposed to be ready. And apparently, God preserves them from harm at the Battle of Armageddon. Isn't that cool? Now go back to Revelation 16. Look in verse number 16. So let's look at the reality of this battle. Now I know we got a lot of heavy stuff here tonight, guys, and I'm sorry. I'm going to pass out energy drinks here in just a moment. We've got Red Bull on tap. We've got all kinds of great stuff. Help you stay awake. Um, speaking of the Red Bull, oh yeah, man. <clears throat> the Battle of Armageddon. All right, letter C. So it says, he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. This is the place of gathering. And it's a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Har Megiddo. Mount Megiddo is what it's referring to. Okay, it's on the west side of the Valley of Jezreel. It's located between the north, north, south, and east-west crossroads, about 14 miles wide, 67 miles long, about 1,000 square miles. A lot of battles have been fought there. Uh, historically, it's associated with a lot of sorrow because a lot of, number, a lot of armies have been there. Um, the oldest name in the Bible is, its oldest name is Herosheth of the Gentiles. So if you ever studied that and heard that, uh, in the Bible, that's what it is. Jehu killed Ahaziah there. Uh, Barak and Deborah fought the Canaanites there. Gideon fought the Midianites there. Uh, King Saul and King Josiah died in this valley. It's, it's close to and part of the, where David defeated Goliath. And uh, you go into more recent history, you're going to have even Napoleon was there and scattered the Ottomans. And when he came, uh, he came up to Egypt and then he decided to come up and, and supposedly he made a claim, kind of a promotional claim, uh, like an ad, an ad campaign. I'm going to restore Jerusalem to the, is, to the Jews, even though he really couldn't even fulfill that. Um, but, but then you had uh, General Allenby in 1917 that came along. And this, this area figured prominently throughout history. Very important area. But again, it, it's not the battle of Armageddon. It is the place of Armageddon. Okay. Something else to keep in mind, which we didn't say, hold your place. Look at, uh, look at chapter nine quickly. Chapter nine. We're coming in to, for a landing here. Chapter nine. Look at verse number 13. It says, the sixth angel sounded, heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound, where? In the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed. Now, I don't, this is connected, apparently, with this time frame of, of bringing everyone together. I, there are four angels mentioned here. Is that because there uh, were four rivers in the Garden of Eden? I don't know. But Euphrates, remember, was one of the rivers coming out of the Garden of Eden. Very interesting. And uh, you can see that it, there's a connection for sure. But I want to talk about the reasons that they gather here. Back to uh, Revelation 16. The reasons. And first of all, the reason is because God wants them there. This is why they gather there. God himself says in Isaiah 34 two, the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. He says in Joel 3, I, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, Zechariah 14, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. My determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation. 
Okay, so the reasons they gather, number one, God wants them there and that's why they come. But in, as you're studying scripture, sometimes we think, well, it has to be this and it can't be that. It's both. There's another reason. Here's the second reason. Satan wants them there. Satan wants them there. Remember 16. Look at verse number 14. It says, they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God. They're there because Satan wants them there. And then you have, look at chapter 11, look at verse 18. Here's another reason. Revelation 11, verse 18. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged. And that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. Why? Because man wants to be there. Man is upset and mad. See, there's, there's multiple things happening all at once, and God is so big that he can use all of those things. See, people say, oh, I don't want the devil to hear my prayers. <laughs> okay, so don't pray out loud, I guess. But let's just say the devil hears your prayers, and I, just may, I think maybe the devil was doing it. You know what's interesting about the battle of Armageddon? All three entities are involved, God, Satan, and man. Which one do you think is getting his way? They all think they're getting their way, but only one is actually getting his way. Why? Because only one is going to destroy them with the spirit of his mouth. So just be, don't get too caught up in, is this God or is this the devil? Because even when you as a, as a man or a woman have a will and say, I'm going to do this, God can even use, he maketh the wrath of man to praise him. God can even use those things. I'm not saying that you should fight against God. It's just even when you are in your rebellion. How many testimonies have you heard of people saying, I fought God and I went out and I did all those things, but God preserved me and God kept me. And then you know why? You know what people have now? They have an understanding and appreciation of God and, and, and a love for God and for his mercy that they wouldn't have had. I'm not saying that God wants you to go and fight against him. I'm saying even when you are out there, you're never outside of the reach of God. Even when you think you're in charge, you're not. God is working this stuff and he brings them together. One final place tonight, and that's Psalm 2. We'll close in Psalm 2. And you all have been troopers tonight. You've almost endured till the end of the tribulation. Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2, he says in verse number 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take uh, counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is that? That's Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Against his anointed, saying... Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. So there's something about this. Do they know that when do they know that Jesus is coming? And that's why they're coming to Armageddon? Well, Jesus told them. He told them in Acts chapter 1, this same Jesus which you, which you see going to heaven shall so come in like manner. You know what's interesting about this? 
They could be assembling not just to, uh, to, not just to fight one another or to fight Israel or whatever. They could, they, they're assembling to fight the Son of God himself. They know that's why they're coming. They're saying, this is ridiculous. Hey, if we all get on the same page, we could tear them down. Let's do it. They come together. Look what the Lord's response is. Verse number four. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. You don't find God laughing very often in Scripture. Uh, But here he is laughing. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath. There's the sword of his mouth. And vex them in his sore displeasure. Look down in verse number 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Not every judge or every king is coming up against God uh, in the battle of Armageddon. He gives them admonition, and it's perfect admonition for us to close with tonight. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. (laughs) How do you do that? Only God can cause you to rejoice in Him and be afraid of Him at the same time. He is holy. He is harmless, and yet he has all power. And if you're not afraid of God, you're missing a part of God's uh, personality. If you're not rejoicing in him, you're missing a part of the relationship with God. Rejoice with trembling. And he says in verse number uh, 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little... Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. If it's true that Judas Iscariot is uh, reincarnated, so to speak, or resurrected back to be the beast, it's interesting, or the false prophet. It's interesting here that he says, kiss the son. He did that one time and uh, ended up committing suicide. But he said, kiss the son so that you don't have to uh, perish from his anger. Let me encourage you, if you're not saved tonight, if you, maybe if you're listening online or you're here tonight, um, you don't want to mess around with an angry God. Jesus Christ's wrath is nothing to play with. When's the last time you were afraid of God? That same God that we know as our Savior has the power to destroy people with the word of his mouth. So we've got to make sure in our own relationship, in our own connection with God, that we rejoice with trembling, that we kiss the Son and thank Him for His mercy and His grace. Thank Him for the blood that He shed for our sins. And He ends out by saying, Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. We talked about that on Sunday. Trusting in the Lord. And uh, it's a God that is worthy of our faith and of our praise. We're going to go to prayer tonight.